Okay, I think I'm live now. It says I am. So would you open God's precious holy word to the Revelation 2? And we're going to be in verses 18 through 29. This uh, is the longest of the letters to the seven churches. This is the fourth church that we're looking at now, the church at Thyatira. You go about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, which is where we were last time, and you find yourself in the least important of the seven cities. That doesn't mean that the church is less important than any other of the churches, but the city itself is the least important because it's located in a valley uh, between a couple of important cities, and its purpose was to serve as a sentinel or a military city. The, the, uh, the soldiers would be there, all of the armaments that were needed would be there, and it was their job to stop an invasion from taking the big city that was in the other direction. So it was a city that was designed really to be destroyed in battle and then rebuilt again and uh, destroyed again. They did have one major industry. It was the industry of purple dye. You will remember from Acts 16, a lady named Lydia. She was a seller, a merchant of purple dye, which uh, there's an interesting story about how the purple dye was extracted. It was an expensive dye. I'm not going to get into all that, but uh, it had that one industry. Another thing that it has in common with the cities we've seen so far and that we will continue to see in these seven cities is that uh, the city was filled with people who worshipped false gods. The primary god of uh, Thyatira was the sun god, Tremnus. It is said that the temple there was built and polished in such a way that it uh, brilliantly reflected uh, the sunlight. So there would have been polished, polished uh, metals and polished marble, everything highly polished, uh, and situated in such a way so that when, the, as the sun moved across uh, the sky, uh, it, was, it was like a shining light in the middle of that city, this temple to the sun god Tremnus. I've been telling you that Christ introduces himself in a different way to each of the seven churches. This is the unveiling of the Son of God. So every time... He introduces himself to one of the seven churches. Of course, he's already been introduced in a glorious way in the Revelation 1. But there's, there's a new thing that is unveiled about him in writing for the church. It's not necessarily something new that was unknown to the church, but it is something that is made manifest through the hand of the apostle, thus recorded in, uh, in the last of the books of the Bible, of the canon of Scripture. And so here, in verse 18, we'll see that Jesus introduces himself like this. And to the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God. Now, he's not the Son of Man here. He calls himself the Son of God. This is the highest title uh, that he would take here, the Son of God. So it, it, immediately he expresses his deity. The one uh, having his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet 
like burnished bronze. Well, let's let's stop there and think about it. Um, so, okay, he's the son of God. That means that he is to be seen as deity without question. He's he you 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 and I are sons of God. We are children of God. But we are, not, not a single one of us is the only begotten Son of God. That, of course, is God the Son. He is the second of the Trinity. He is of the magnificent Godhead. He is God who has been manifested in the flesh. Very God, a very God, and His majesty and His glory are incomparable. So, and to me, He seems to set Himself against the majesty and the glory of the brilliance of the shining temple of Timnus. Uh, of, of trimness, but, uh, but his glory is unquestioned and undoubtedly would, o- would overshadow, of course, any kind of earthen glory. Nothing on earth, nothing in the world could ever compare to the glory of the Son of God. So the Thyatirans, the, the, the Thyatirans needed a reminder of the, of the glory and splendor of the Son of of God, all they had to do was look at the temple that was there in the middle of their city, and then think of how much more magnificent uh, the Son of God is. Now, sometimes Christians fix their gaze on the things of this world, and they they almost hypnotize believers. And sometimes the world comes at us with a philosophy or some kind of so-called academic knowledge or whatever that is really contrary to Scripture, or comes to us with, a, with, with a, some kind of logic that defies Scripture, um, or introduces something to us that is foreign to Scripture, it's unbiblical, anti-biblical, and the world in, in some cases can be so convincing that, that people who are in the church who have not immersed themselves in the Word of God can be can be led astray. Uh, they can be duped by false majesty. They can think that something in the world uh, that uh, that is deceiving us, and there is a great deception in the world, especially today. Uh, and the job of the world is to attack the Word of God, the Christ of God, and believers, and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole thing. Anything, I'm telling you, anything, anything that, that the world is doing needs to be examined in light of Scripture. And we need to be very careful uh, because we are under great delusion, especially in these days. I saw a thing. You know, the book of Daniel prophesies that uh, in the very last days, knowledge would be greatly increased, as, as would travel. Travel and knowledge would be greatly increased. And I saw a man preaching on TV, and he was preaching, I think, from Daniel or from some portion. And he quoted uh, some studies such that every, every 12 hours, Knowledge is doubled. <laughs> That's incomprehensible to me. I can tell you this: mine hadn't doubled in sixty years. But uh, 
the overall cumulative knowledge of man doubles every 12 hours. He made the point. When you lay your head on your pillow tonight and you go to sleep, when you wake up in the morning, the world will have twice as much knowledge as it had when you went to sleep. That's, that's unfathomable to me. But when you think of all of the dizzying uh, paces of, of the Internet and uh, how, how men are beginning to add their knowledge to, to one another in the world, it's almost like the Tower of Babel all over again where everybody's effort is to pool their knowledge together and then with someone's knowledge taking and adding to that his capability of doing something, he can increase his knowledge and, and the way that he does things, the way he researches or the new things that he's researched. To think of how, uh, thank you, darling, uh, to think of how, she just can't help it when she hears me preach. Uh, she gets in the Holy Ghost. But um, knowledge being increased at such a pace like this, we have to be very careful because there is only one fixed absolute truth, and that is the Word of God. Now, we're never afraid of facts, and we're never afraid of true knowledge. That's a wonderful thing that glorifies God. But... Paul warns Timothy, he says, beware of science falsely so-called. I'm, I'm referencing here how the world can put something in front of us, like in, in Thyatira in their day, a glorious, highly polished, beautiful, magnificent temple to Trimnus, the sun god. And somebody could look at that and they could say, you know, I don't see how anything could shine more brightly than that. Man, this is... This is true glory. This is true majesty. But it doesn't, it's, it doesn't compare to the incomparable, to the incomparable, uncomparable, incomparable majesty and glory of the Son of God. So you and I have to just accept this truth, and we're told this truth in the Scriptures, that we are under, the world is under a great delusion. We're under a great satanic attack. And we have to measure everything by the standard of the Word of God. That's absolute truth to us. And uh, everything else is false. Now here, there seems to be an implication here in the Scriptures that some in the church at Thyatira were being hypnotized uh, by the world and by the glory that the world would seem to display. Uh, and, and, and some people could become tolerant of things in this time of great delusion, people could begin to tolerate things that are actually unbiblical, and this would be very displeasing to Jesus. We're going to see that here uh, in this passage of Scripture. Let's break this passage down. Jesus says his eyes are like a flame of fire. I think I've talked about this before, but it's the biblical symbolism of the omniscience of the Son of God. He knows everything. There's nothing He does not know. So here, I would look back to, for example, I would look back to Hebrews 4 and verse 13, and it says, all, and I've written out a couple of scriptures here, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do, that is namely Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 
Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. And he's talking about Christians. You lay a foundation, which is Christ in your, in your life. You lay the foundation. Now, how are you going to live the life? Are you going to build on that wood, hay, and stubble, which is just, just useless stuff? Or are you going to build gold and silver and precious jewels, which only shine more brightly when they're polished with fire? Uh, so he says, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so through fire. Now, Jesus gave us a clear picture of this examining omniscience from his eyes of fire. In the Revelation 1, he talked about examining the lampstands, walking in and out among the lampstands, which were the churches, and examining them to see what their works were, uh, to see how they were uh, how they were responding to his call to service and so forth. Now here's, here's what we're looking, looking at. We're looking at the fact, the truth, that the eyes of Christ are on fire. They are cleansing. They are piercing. They are all-knowing. And Christ knows what we're doing. He knows it. He examines our service to him, and he does it all the time. It's not just something that he does partially. He does it all the time here. The day will show it. As he looks, he cleanses. So thank God for his look. When he looks, he cleanses. Now, with that in mind, we can see that he knows our priorities as, as a church and as believers. You know, I have a wasp in here, and the brightest thing in here are my computer screens. And he's going to make me bite him if he gets too close. So if you see me have a Holy Ghost fit, you'll know that me and a wasp got entangled uh, with one another. Okay, so I'm going to keep one eye on the Bible and one eye on the wasp over there. He's already buzzed me a couple of times. Now, Christ knows how we love, how deeply we love, what we love, how we serve, if we serve, what we do, what's important to us what we love, what we despise. He knows our priorities. He knows everything about us, not just as Christians, but as a church. Here, he is addressing through the messenger, he's addressing uh, the church. And he knows when a church, at least some people within a church, he knows when they, when, they get, when they become compromising Christians. He knows when they become just too lenient in this world, not careful enough thus giving out some kind of false testimony to others who see us as supposedly Christians, and yet we, we walk hand in hand in some ways uh, with the world. This is where Christ is here with Thyatira because he says his feet are like, I'm looking back now, his feet are like burnished bronze or brass. Brass is associated with judgment upon sin in the Bible. As a matter of fact, when you go into the, we've talked about this before, but when you walk through the gates into the tabernacle back in the book of Exodus, the first thing you see, there are instruments of brass. And, and the one that's really dominant uh, is, is, of course, the altar. And then there are the tongs and the lever of cleansing. 
That's where a worshiper, for the first thing you do when you start coming into the presence of God in the tabernacle, you deal with sin. And so it's judged, and the brass here is, is seen as that which judges sin. It uh, takes it away. It judges, uh, it judges sin. Now, what I'm seeing here in this passage is that the Thyatirans are trying to serve on, on the one hand, without dealing with sin in their lives, on the other hand, thus they become lenient with themselves and with each other, and that makes them tolerant of sin. That's never a good place to be as a church or as a believer. That shouldn't be a common thing to anybody, but it became common in, uh, in Thyatira as we examine the Scripture here. Now, thinking back, in Ephesus... Christ removed the useless lampstand from its place. In Pergamum, he drew his sword, which was two-edged, the Word of God, and he went to war against that church and slashed away those within the church that were injurious to the church, and he did it with a sharp two-edged sword, the Word of God that came from his mouth. When we put ourselves under the Word of God, we'll be cleansed. We accept it. All of us, every one of us are going to find places where we have fallen short. What do we do? Well, we confess the sin. You know, that's right. That's the truth about who I am. I confess the sin, and I'm going to turn away from it. I repent of this sin. And, and let, the, let the fiery eyes of Christ examine us and cleanse us from the sin that is in our lives. Now, these verse. Let's look at. Uh, let's uh, let me go back. Let's look at verse nineteen. I know your works. So it's a church that has some good works, and here he lists them. And the love, agape. That's that very special high love, agape. And the faith. And the ministry. Diaconian, we get the word deacon from that, and, and service or ministry. It is, it, is the, it is the serving of tables. It is where a believer takes a humble servant's attitude and serves others who have need. And your perseverance. And your works. The latter are greater than the first. Well, that's great. They, their works were getting better. They were, they were, they were becoming a, a harder working church. They weren't a dead church. They were active in ministry, involved in ministry. That's what the Word says. These people were saved because He commended them not only for their love, but for their faith. The faith. They accepted Christ as Savior. And he didn't question their faith. He didn't question their salvation here. He didn't question their service. They tended to one another's needs. And then they were persevered. They endured, just like any other church in a pagan city, they endured, they persevered in a time of pressure, <clears throat> in a time of, um, of tribulation. Then the works... The last works, the latter works, greater than the first works. Did you know that Jesus keeps up with the church's history? Think about that. 
There are books that are being kept in heaven. Shiloh is known for what it has done, what it is doing, what it will do as long as the Lord tarries and doesn't come. Well, the Lord doesn't tarry as long as he hasn't come yet. He has a time he's going to come. He won't tarry. Uh, he'll come. But uh, he keeps up with the works of a church. Keeps a record of it. And he says, you know, your, your latter works are greater than, than your first works. You're doing good there. But he will not tolerate any unbiblical, unscriptural leniency in the church. Let's look at verse 20. But I have against you that you, uh, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now I have to say that I, th I think probably the woman is called Jezebel in a spiritual sense by Jesus. Um, because of how she's described. The one calling herself a prophetess. Oh dear. And teaching and um, the word would be leading into error, misleading, to lead astray. Uh, plana. Planai. Uh, we get our word planet from that. A planet is a wandering star to the Greeks. And the, the star, some stars, they were stars, they were fixed. But other stars, they were in a different place every night. Well, those were the planets. The one, that's where you get the word. So this is to lead people astray, to mislead them in teaching. Called herself a prophetess, teaching and misleading my servants. And here's what she was teaching them, Okay to commit sexual immorality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, this meant that Jezebel was saying, and this is, okay, let's go back, let's go back to Jezebel uh, in the time of Elijah. Jezebel was from Sidon. Jezebel was a priestess of Baal. You, maybe you remember that in our study in Elijah. And it was her job to force compromise in Israel. It was her job to present Baal worship alongside Yahweh worship. So, okay, and it was, it was filled, we've talked about this, I hate to keep bringing it up, but it was a, a pagan worship in those days built around a fertility cult, always glorified sexual immorality openly as, as a part of worship. That's why they had temple prostitutes, male and female prostitutes. And uh, you name the kind of sex act and, and they would uh, use it as a type of worship. And so-called worshipers would get involved with the priests and the priestesses. That's as far as I'm going there. Now, this Jezebel in, uh, in First Kings was, and the, boy, this was great. You know, hey, uh, they said, well, the king's doing it. His wife's doing it. This is great. We, we can have these orgiastic feasts and we can become involved in these uh, loose morals and sexual immorality. So the teaching of Jezebel was to loosen uh, the bonds of sexual behavior. Now, the Bible is very clear. Uh, sexual behavior is limited 
to a husband and a wife in the state of marriage. And the husband, all the way through Hebrew and Greek, the noun husband is always in a masculine, and the noun wife is always in the feminine, so it's always a man and a woman. It's, it's not men or women, it's a man and a woman. If it's anything outside of that, it's either, it's, it's overall, it's, it's immoral, it's immorality, and it's either adultery or it's fornication, according to where, whether or not both parties are married and all that kind of stuff. I'm not getting into the legalities of it. But here's a church who allows a woman to teach that you can, that you can get outside the parameters of the biblical definition of sexual behavior. Okay? She was Jezebel. Now, so we're going to be lenient. We're going to kind of, you know, we're not going to be too harsh and we're not going to be too judgmental on the way that people do things over there in the, in the temple to Tremnus and, and, and how pagans carry out their, their, their way of life. You know, we're, so, you know, okay, you compromise, you become lenient, and then you just begin to slide into that thing, that kind of behavior. And you compromise. You become a compromising uh, church member. And to eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, of course, that meant that, uh, that, the, that the church members were sitting down and worshiping with pagans. Hey, you come and you come and worship you come and worship Jesus with us when we have the Lord's Supper, and we'll go when you have your when you have your pagan feast, and we'll we'll have a hamburger that's made out of the the rump of a bull sacrificed to Tremnus or whatever. Um, well, of course that's 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 wrong. You can't. That's like me saying I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to go worship. I don't know Islam or whatever else on the time that they do their things and then you guys come and worship. That's total compromise. Total compromise. It's, 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 it's unbiblical. It's anti-biblical. It's anti-Christ. There's only one way, and that's Christ. So, this was an erroneous teaching. And on behalf of Jezebel, it was vile leadership permitted somehow by the church and it caused certain members of the church at Thyatira to be compromising and to become just too, too, too lenient. This, hey, uh-uh, can't do this. So he, by calling her Jezebel, Jesus is telling us that, that this woman had advocated mixing worldliness with Christianity. You know, I can do my thing. I can do my thing in my life out here, but, but, I've, but, but then when I come back here, I do my Christian thing. It's, 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 it's like the untruth that is touted, and there's, there's no, you don't find the phrase in the Constitution or anything else, separation of church and state. It's just not there. That's just a man-made philosophy. Uh, and that's like telling somebody that you're going to have to separate your life of faith with your life of employment. You, how can you separate your faith from anything else? This is what Jesus is saying to the Thyatirans. Jezebel is teaching you this stuff and that stuff is wrong. It's worldliness. There were some within the church at Thyatira that according to her teaching, whatever they wanted to do was, was relevant. There were no absolutes to them. They refused 
They refuse to anchor their lives on the absolutes of Scripture. Well, that's too lenient. That's compromising. So here's, here's uh, let's look at that verse. Uh, well, let's let's look at uh, let's look at the next uh, let's look at verses twenty one, the next couple or three verses here. And I have given her time that she might repent, and she is not willing to repent of the sexual, of her sexual immorality. Look or behold, I will throw her into a sick bed. Now, there's no denying the word here, uh, cleaning. It's a bed of sickness. It's, it's, it's physical illness, physical infirmity. I will, I will throw her into a sick bed. And those committing adultery with her into tribulation, into, uh, into great tribulation, if they shall not Repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with death. Now, you understand something. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, talking to his church. I'll throw Jezebel into a sickbed, and I will kill her children with death. Why? Here it is that all the churches will know that I am the one searching affections and hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Let's talk about this a minute. Did you know there is a sin that is a sin unto death? I would submit to you, and I'm not going to talk about it other than to say this. I believe in my lifetime. Now, I've been a pastor since 1978. You figure that out. What's that, 42 years? I've been preaching since 1976. And I have grown up in church all my life. This being away from church and church family is just (laughs) becoming a lot to me. But with that said, I believe on a couple of occasions in my ministry, I have seen people, I don't talk about it, and I don't, I'm not the judge of these things. But I believe I, I've seen people who have committed a sin to death. People who have given warning and others knew that the warning had come and the warning did not was not heeded and either thrown into a terrible sick bed or beyond that killed killed the apostle says there's a sin that's a sin unto death and I'm telling you not to pray for those well okay I don't that's above my pay grade trying to figure out who has and who hadn't committed it but I have a an idea of a couple of people through the years, people who were of prominence in a church, 
and they fell greatly and they refused to acknowledge the great sin. It, both times it was, it was sexual sin. And in a very short period of time, they died grievously and tragically. And all I could do, and all of the people that I knew who knew the situation wouldn't want to talk about it, but I think everybody knew, you know, this is a judgment of God that'll teach the rest of us a lesson. Why does that happen? Well, here it is. So that all the churches will know that I am the one who searches your affections and your hearts. Boy, you've got to be careful. And my master Chung in, in, in the old Kongsu class used to say, the, the taller the tree, the stronger the wind. And those who have, well, to whom much is given, much shall be required. I can't speak to it other than that other than to tell you that here's what Jesus Christ is saying. Jesus Christ is saying, I am the Son of God. I made you. I'm watching you. I'll judge you. I can even kill you if I want to. That's exactly what he says here. Now, who were her children? Most likely those who were following her teachings. Christ came... The Son of God. What did he say? I am the Son of God. That's how he introduces himself. I have eyes of fire, and my feet are burnished bronze, and I am trampling on sin. I am examining, cleansing, and trampling on sin. That's what he does. And this, is, this, is how he, this is a further revelation, a further unveiling of Jesus Christ. So, he says uh, that the other churches will know, and I'll give each one of you according to your works. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's look at verse, what is that, 24 and following. However, to you I say, to the rest of those in Thyatira, not the one, those who have not followed the teachings of Jezebel, as many as have not, uh, the, as many as have not this teaching, who have not known the depths of Satan, Whew. as they say, I will, not, I will not cast upon you any other uh, burden, but hold fast to what you have until which time I might come. Now here is an allusion to his second coming, to his coming for his church, the translation of believers. And the overcoming one and the one keeping my works until the end, I will give to him authority over the nations. That's a reference to the millennial kingdom of Christ. And he will shepherd them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken in pieces just as I also have received from my father. And I will give to him the morning star. 
the morning star. Revelation twenty two sixteen references that. The, the, that's Jesus. He'll give to him the morning star. That's the, that's the earliest, the brightest thing that you see of the stars. He'll give himself. And to me, it's, it's almost like a, a, a reference to the rapture. The one having an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I tell you, the longest of the seven letters to the seven churches is this one. To the lenient, compromising church. You can't have, comp you can't have compromise. This is why it's so important to stick to the Word of God. Word of God. Word of God. Word of God. Our job is to disciple all the nations. We start where we are. That's our job. You make learners of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ. And everything in the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to the Revelation 22-21 is about Jesus. So we go through the whole Scripture. We don't leave any of it out. Some of it is, some of it we seem to drag through and some of it seems kind of Strange and bizarre, and some of it you think, well, why in the world are we studying this? It is all pertinent. And someday, someday in our minds, we'll remember something that maybe we heard from some strange book of the Bible that did at, at the time didn't seem to mean a lot, but all of a sudden it'll mean something to us. Because this Bible lives, that the Word of God lives. This is what we do. And one of the things that really shields us from the delusion of the world and from the teachings of the Jezebels of the world is the Scriptures. We, we, we set our minds, you know, some things are going to confuse me as I study it. In the by and by, I'll learn more about it. Some things are going to make me mad. I'm not going to necessarily agree with it right then. But who am I? Who am I to say? We just have to set this mindset and this world view that the Bible is always right. It may, not, it may not seem like it's popular, but who cares? Many times it's, it's not popular to be right, but the Bible is always right. This is why we go through the Bible uh, word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because the whole thing is, is, is the body of work. It is the, it is the living Word as Christ is the incarnate Word. So we study the Word of God and the more we study it, the more we pick up on the principles of, of who God is and who we are and who we are in Christ and what a friend He is and how wonderful and gracious God is. And, and we reach this wonderful, we, re, we reach this wonderful time where we begin to say, you know, he is everything and I'm nothing and I'm so thankful. For whatever reason, He extended His grace to me and called me out of this world. Well, we have to be careful not to ever let anything slip into the doors of our church that would hint at false doctrine or the teachings of Jezebel, so-called, here uh, in, in the letter to the Thyatirans. Uh, and we have to stay with the Word 
if, <laughs> if it costs us everything, it really won't cost us anything to stay with the Word of God. He, having ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Father God, we love your Word. God, these are strange times. But your Word is true. Maybe a storm is beginning to rage, but your Word is an anchor. Father, darkness is falling over the nations, but your Word is light. Rottenness and decay prevails in so many ways, but your word is salt in our lives and it preserves. Help us to understand the great encumbrance that we have in you that we are salt and light in an otherwise decaying and dark world. Oh God, help us to teach our children our grandchildren, to be committed to the Word, to stand against delusion and darkness. And Father, many of us, and I'm one of them, believe these are the last days and we have this time now to cry out to others to be saved, to come to Jesus Christ, be saved and live forever. So give us the resources that we need, the strength that we need, the open doors that we need so that we can proclaim the gospel in these last days and teach us to strengthen one another by discipling each other in your precious holy word. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.